And we've been using uh, Luke 14 and particularly Jesus' encounters uh, with the religious leaders and now today with the crowds on a larger scale as a, an opportunity for us to begin to rethink and reaction uh, evangelism. Now, why? Why should we do this? Uh, is it just about uh, filling our hall? No. It's about eternity. The scriptures teach us that heaven and hell are real, that there is both God's judgment and salvation, and that God, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, is working in this world to bring that salvation, to bring blessing and peace and glory to his name. The Bible tells us that that is what God is doing and that we as his people are part of that. We are those who in Christ's name hold out the invitation. We speak of the eternal realities of the banquet of the king. And none can get in without the invitation. And so last week I introduced you to a fairly provocative quote by a fairly famous uh, preacher, a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And he spoke of the passion that we should have as a church. He spoke in language that maybe is not really the way we would speak, but I think he portrays the passion that we should have. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We are speaking as we're speaking about rethinking and reactioning evangelism we're talking about that word that goes out that word of invitation as well as that word of warning you cannot get in without an invitation but none are excluded except for by their choice so as we think about this i want to ask you this morning how big is your vision did it stretch as far as flinders university did you think Yes, we've got a mission. And yes, Flinders University. Yes, Lauren and the evangelical students there. How big is your vision? Does it stretch as far as Adelaide? 1.35 million people. Does it go even as far as South Australia? 1.7 million people. Let's just stop there. I did a bit of research during the week and dug up some stats from some recent uh, research that has been done. And a man by the name of Mark McCrindle, who is a uh, demographer, that's a fancy word for people who ask questions and get answers and put stats together, and then they put them in funky little infographics like this. Okay? Uh, he tells me in 2016 that 34% of our nation uh, believe that Jesus is God and Saviour. Okay, 34%. That's possibly bigger than you thought. Uh, and I would suggest that the answer to this question is reasonably important because of what Paul teaches in Romans 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So really, this is a question that touches in on the core of our faith. And 34%, maybe we're feeling comfortable. Okay? Let me tell you that only 14.5% by the same study attend church once a month. Okay? And so I did some more maths, and I worked out how many churches roughly in uh, Adelaide and South Australia... Uh, particularly Protestant churches, worked out how many Protestants were out there, people like us, you know, uh, that not Roman Catholic, not Orthodox, you know, Anglican, Uniting, Congregational, Baptist, all those people kind of become Protestants. That tells me that if that stat is right, the average attendance at the average church on the average Sunday, what's your figure? Okay, 210. A little bit less than double what's here this morning. But can I tell you, the average church on the average Sunday in Adelaide does not have 210 people in it. I think people are fudging their stats. The situation is dire. But even if this was true, even if the 34% was true, there are 66% that are not, that do not, that by their own admission have refused the invitation to the king's banquet. Now, Vision 2020 is about making an impact for God in this place. I think it's fair for us to talk of Adelaide and South Australia. I think that's where we have to start, but we cannot limit our vision. Some of you will know, um, I kind of like a bit of a hike. Okay, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to put my backpack on once again uh, and walk 100 or so kilometres and climb mountains, and I find that fun. Okay, um, you might not think of that fun. Okay, I heard someone this morning saying uh, that uh, some part of their family had gone up and climbed up to Everest Base Camp. Uh, they went and sat on a beach in Queensland. That was their idea of fun. But maybe you think, okay, I'll go for a hike with Cameron. Where can we go? Well, let's, let's climb Flagstaff Hill. Okay, how big's your vision? Well, Flagstaff Hill, 214 metres above sea level. Is that as far as you go? Maybe you might stretch a little bit further. Okay, what's the big mountain around here, everyone? It's lofty, isn't it? Okay, 727 metres above sea level. And um, I've walked up there. There's a great walk that comes from... Um, uh, Kingston Park Beach, all the way up through the hills uh, to Mount Lofty. You climb each one of those 727 metres and people go, you, you're daft. Why would you do that? But how big is your vision? How big is your vision? Let's go for the biggest mountain in Australia. Okay, we're going to Kosciuszko. Uh, we're going to 2,228 2, metres. And so you see, if your vision's Flagstaff Hill, it's pretty small, isn't it? It's about 10% of what you'd need if you're going to climb that big vision. But can I say, as far as mountains go, Australia really does lag. There are many things that we excel in, but mountains ain't one of them. Okay? Here we have Everest at 8,848. 8, and you can see Flagstaff Hill, 2%. Okay? It is tiny by comparison. Or 2.5%. How big is your vision? What is it going to take for us to reach South Australia with the gospel? Well, it depends how big you think that task is. Can I say, I have not saved one person 
in my entire life. It is beyond my capacity. And I'd like to suggest that if you think about things biblically, even though you may have seen many people come to faith, you have not saved one person either. It is beyond any human capacity to change the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. That is God's work. That is God's work and he has a vision, a vision that is much, much bigger than Adelaide. He has a vision that covers the globe. The book of Revelation speaks of nation, tribe, people and language, every single one of them. Even the Brits, they need salvation after yesterday's game, don't they? And even the South Africans, okay? The glory and the shame, okay? You can swap that round. You can work out where they are. Uh, but every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And if we're honest, this is so far beyond our capacity. It speaks of the incredible demand of being God's people. Now, we're going to unpack that demand this morning with three points. The demanding words, the demanding response, and the demanding calling. Let's roll. We've been seeing Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus. And I would like to just, I would like to ask you again, is your Jesus too small? Do we domesticate Jesus? Do we turn Jesus into a comfortable figure i find that as soon as i stop and i actually come face to face with the real jesus he is confronting he cannot be tamed do we reduce his commands to something that is just a little bit more than what we're doing now and if we just stretch ourselves a little bit further we could do that perhaps that's why we don't pray because we think we've kind of got this covered. Can I speak to the blokes amongst us? Ladies, you can tune off. Just, just close your ears. I don't want you to feel self-righteous at this point. Um, I've noticed that while we've been running our prayer gathering, only on one Sunday have the men outnumbered the women. And mostly, like it was this morning, it's me with five wonderful women uh, praying about the things of the kingdom. I think, guys, we are... We are can-do kind of guys in Australia. Uh, we love the practical hands-on thing. And coming before God in prayer is actually saying, God, I can't do. You can. We can't. So, guys, is there something there that is in our idea of what it means to be a man of God that excludes prayer? Just leave that with you. Because I think we reduce Jesus, we domesticate him, and perhaps we even emasculate him. We come to him and we make bargains with him and we say, if I'll do my bit, I'll give to the things that you tell me to give to, I'll serve in the way that you tell me to serve, I might even evangelize as long as you do your bit for me. I want a nice life, I want my kids to go well, I want a good job, I want things to be relatively easy i want you to meet my needs it's a funny one we've got to remember that we are not dealing uh, with a tame god you might remember the line the witch in the wardrobe and a conversation that susan one of the main characters has with mr beaver mr beaver says to her 
Oh, no, Susan says, Aslan is a lion? Ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Have we got a safe Jesus? But I would like to suggest that in his love, the real Jesus will not let us sit comfortably with a Jesus that is anything less than Lord and King. And today he fires some of his most demanding shots. What's he saying? If anyone comes to me and does not hate Father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. It's pretty in your face, isn't it? And in his time, it would have been even more in your face. Because family in that culture was everything. Some of us, if we've come out of non-Western societies, we get this. Others of us, Aussies, uh, people who've come out of cultures like us, a bit more individualistic. No, family's important, but it's not the main thing. In that culture, family was everything. It formed your identity. So in Jewish culture, uh, Jesus' last name, he would have been known as Jesus Bar Joseph, Jesus, son of Joseph. He was defined by who his father was, his family, where they were, that everyone knew where you belonged and your identity. And Jesus here is saying, no longer is your family that place. I am that place. Your relationship to me, not to your parents, not to your spouse, not to your kids. He foresees the individualism of our days, not to ourselves. Your relationship to me defines you. I am the one to whom you belong. I am the one who defines your life. I am the one who determines how you conduct everything else. Because in those days, you would fit within the social sphere, depending on where you fitted in your family. Their expectations and the expectations of that family within the community. But Jesus is saying, I define all relationships for you. So when you think about work, you don't think of it from a family perspective. You think of it from a Jesus perspective. When you think about family, you don't think it from your own personal perspective. You think, how would Christ have me here? That is what Jesus is saying. That allegiance to him trumps everything. Absolutely everything. So much so that it makes love look like hate. Jesus isn't actually telling us to go home and start swearing at our parents. This is uh, the fifth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Jesus upholds this as he rebukes the Pharisees for twisting this into a way of neglecting their parents. Jesus is not telling us to actually hate. But what he is saying is that our love and our commitment and our allegiance to him is so great 
that it looks like hate. Because at the end of the day, if family comes into conflict with Jesus, Jesus is to win every single time. And in case we don't get it, he then adds another one. Verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Notice this, this repetition, cannot be my disciple. Let me just take a step back. We have a category, and it's a biblical category. We call ourselves Christians. Okay, and a while ago, there was a kind of a trendy way of thinking that you could be a Christian without being a disciple. But can I say the Bible sees those as exactly the same thing. If anyone wants to be my disciple, Jesus is saying, if anyone wants to be a Christian, if anyone wants a seat at the heavenly banquet, this is how you do it. That's what he's talking about. And here he's saying, you must take up your cross and follow. Jesus had yet to go to the cross, but this was a common sight. The sight of the condemned walking from the place of conviction to the place of execution. Shame rejection, suffering, under curse. That's what he's saying. You have to associate yourself with the one who in the world's eyes is accursed. You have to give up your rights to everything. That's what Jesus is saying. And in case we didn't get it, verse 33, he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, Literally, he's saying, those who do not renounce everything cannot be my disciples. Following Jesus means he comes first every single time. Why on earth would you do this? For those of you who are Christians this morning, those of you who are disciples, maybe you're thinking, is this what I signed up for? Really? Jesus trumps everything. Can I say, this is an incredible act of grace. Have you ever been in those, you, you get the, the contractual agreements, they send them to you online. It was quite funny, there was a computer game once um, that uh, in their fine print, their endless reams of fine print that you assented to when you uh, bought the license to the game, uh, you actually agreed to sell them your soul. Uh, do you, you recall that? Uh, and all these people ticked, accept, 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 because no one ever reads the fine print, do they? And so all these people had literally sold their souls to some computer company out there. It was a joke, but they were making a point. No one reads the fine print. But Jesus doesn't put this in the fine print, does he? He's got the crowds following him and he says, renounce everything. Hate your mother, father, brother, sister, wife, husband, children, even your own life. Jesus tells you, up front, the bar is high and if you are going to do it, if you're going to follow me, it's all in or don't bother. That's what he says. So why would you do it? Why would you do it? We'll come back to that. Let's move on to the response. Jesus gives us two pictures. I won't read them again for you, but they're common everyday pictures. The person who builds the tower the king that goes out to battle. There are two pictures that have the one same message. If the king is going to win against the greater enemy, 
He's got to work out, is it within my capacity? I can't leave half my troops at home. I can't leave half my brain at home. I will need everything it takes to see this done. And if I lose, I lose my freedom. I lose my liberty. I lose my life. The guy is building the the tower. He's actually got to think, can I see this through? Otherwise, I get the kind of the the tower half built and everyone walks past and says, he began, but he cannot finish. If I'm going to do it, am I going to commit what is necessary to see this through? Jesus is saying the task is formidable. The challenge is very real. Will you give it everything? You may be familiar with uh, a guy by the name of Hernan Cortez. Now, Cortez was the Spanish explorer who sailed away from Spain with 600 men on some ships uh, to explore and conquer and plunder Mexico. Let's not go there. Let's just talk about the ships and the 600 men. He crosses the ocean in 1519. And what does he do when he gets to Mexico? Does anyone recall? He burns the ships. He gives the order that the ships be burnt. Why? Because Cortez knew there was no going back. This is what Jesus is saying. You cannot put your hand to the plough and turn back. There's no going back. But this doesn't come naturally for us, does it? Particularly those who fall into what's called the options generation. Maybe there's a few of you out there this morning. You know, you've got an out clause with everything. You go into marriage these days and you've got to have the prenup. Okay, that actually describes when this marriage ends. I think the prenup is a prophecy, really. Uh, It's not if this marriage ends, it's when this marriage ends. It's there. We are always looking for the exit. Jesus is saying you cannot look for the exit. If you're going to follow him, you cannot negotiate a prenup. It's all in or not at all. Because a split allegiance is actually not split. Think about it. If you've got a foot in both camps, where does allegiance lie? It's 100% with yourself. Because you're saying, I'm with you, Jesus, as long as this pays off. As long as it pays off, I'm here. No, your allegiance is not to Christ. It's to yourself. It's to yourself. And Jesus says, if that is the case, you cannot be his disciple. If you're there saying, I'm in this for as long as this is convenient, and then, you know, adios. Jesus says, I'm not interested. He's not open to negotiation. He's not going to sit down and haggle with you about the price of discipleship. He says up front, all in or not at all. This should be a stark warning for us. It's not a comfortable word, is it? It's not a comfortable word. We're very comfortable with Jesus, the Jesus that makes no demands, the Jesus that fits in with our plans but he warns us and he says he will not be that to us and by his grace by his grace 
He will not submit to our domestication of him. You see it again and again and again as he confronts the religious leaders of the day who thought they had him under control. Who thought they had God serving their interests. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you are going to serve God, you serve his interests. And the wonderful thing about his grace is as we serve him, as we lose everything in his name, so we gain everything that is there. Christ warns us. Why does he do this? Why does he ask so much? Surely evangelism would be much easier if you didn't have to come in and actually say, Jesus wants absolutely everything. <laughs> you know, it feels like you're kind of giving this very blunt statement. If Jesus only asked for a couple of hours on Sunday morning, maybe he asked for a little bit of time during the week as well. If Jesus could be confined to safe limits, when I became a Christian and I started going to church, uh, my father pulled me aside and he said, it's wonderful you're going to church. Just don't take it too seriously. Famous last words, hey? Um, but that, that, I think, would be easier to sell, wouldn't it? They're lovely people at church. You know, they're really nice. You might meet a wonderful woman that you could marry and have a wonderful family with. Isn't that great? Yes, Jesus meets my ends. Jesus doesn't say, fine, follow me, but just don't take me too seriously. Jesus says, all or nothing. Why does he say this? Let me give you three things. Because of his ultimate worth. That is number one. Because of who he is. Jesus can demand that because he is God's son. If the queen graced us with her presence this morning and she asked you to get, you a cup, get her a cup of coffee at morning tea, would you say, get it yourself? You'd be going, I would love to because of who she is. Even though you don't know her, she doesn't know you. She probably doesn't know your name. You, you know her name. But you, of course, would be calling her Her Majesty. But this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Not some earthly monarch. Because Jesus is who he is, he has absolutely no problem saying all in. Because he is worth it. But not only because he is worth it, because of his work. Because Christ calls us to take up our crosses. He calls us to renounce everything. He did it first. The one who is in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Made himself nothing. Took the form of a servant. Humbled himself. Became obedient even to death on a cross. He did it first. And the amazing thing that we have here is we're not asked to pay him back. We shouldn't think of this, I've got to pick up my cross because Jesus picked up his cross. No. Because Jesus picked up his cross, I can renounce everything. Why? 
But because of his work, I am blessed. Because Christ was cursed for me, I am blessed. Because Christ became poor for me, I have been made rich. Ephesians 1.3, I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And as we see his work for us, it will overflow as we follow him in the mission that he sets before us. So why does he ask so much? Because of his worth, because of his work, and because of his world. The end of our passage, verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. It's a familiar illustration Jesus uses on a couple of different occasions. We could argue about salt. What's he talking about? The particular use? Is it a preservative? Is it a flavouring? What it is, is useful. But it's only useful while it's salty. Okay? It's natural essence. It's essential essence is what actually makes it useful. And if you change that essential essence, it becomes useless. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, my disciples are useful only if they are truly my disciples. If they are following me to get what they want, they're not my disciples and they are saltless salt. Do you see what he's saying? He has called us to be part of his mission. And he says, if you are going to be useful in that mission, you must be sold out for Christ. You must be all in. You can't be half and half. You can't be holding back. You've got to be all in. And as we go, we're inviting people to the king's banquet. Imagine uh, inviting someone over for a meal, but you're not going to be there. Okay? I've got something better to do. Come and hang out with my family, but I've got something. You can come along, you can join them, but I'm going to be off doing something else. Compelling, isn't it? Why would they say yes to that? And you actually go, why don't you come in and join us at this banquet? And I am giving everything I can because Christ made it possible by his grace for me to be part of that. Now that's compelling because they see a life transformed. So they not only see the, hear the words, they see their effect. We invite people. That's what God calls us. That's what mission is. Inviting people to put their trust in God through the death and resurrection of Christ. Extending an invitation to a, a banquet not though, as a guest, you can come to the banquet as a child, loved, accepted, belonging in that place. What a privilege that we have. Not only that we can be there, but that we can invite others. So as I wrap up, what does this mean for us as we talk about Vision 2020, as we talk about rethinking and reactioning evangelism. Let me give you just a couple of things. 
task. One is, we must preach the gospel that Christ preaches. We cannot water it down. We cannot seek to explain away some of the less user-friendly elements. We cannot say to people, oh, Jesus doesn't ask for everything. He doesn't ask for your sexuality. He doesn't ask for your workplace ambition. He doesn't ask for the relationships you have with your friends. He doesn't ask for your online. He just wants Sunday morning. No. We come in and say what Christ himself says. The gospel we preach. It's not a bait and switch that you kind of get people in and then you tell them about the stuff that's not as attractive. No. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. For all who believe. That is the gospel we preach. We cannot water it down. We cannot think that just joining the church is enough. We cannot think that being part of ministries is enough. We need to see people putting Christ on the thrones of their life. What else? If we're going to do this, actually, let me backtrack. If we're going to do anything in Christ's name, it's going to cost. Jesus makes that plain. Renounce everything, take up your cross and follow. There can be no holding back. Lauren stood up here before and asked you for money. I did it earlier. Our leadership group did it. Yes, no problem with that. Because the money goes to pay people to do the mission, set them aside for that to help others do the mission again. Jesus doesn't ask just for our money. He asks for our time. He asks for our very selves. He calls us not to hold anything back. It's not just for the pastors. It's not just for the leaders. It's for all of us. Every disciple carries their cross. But then Luke 9, Jesus tells us, that whoever wants to be their, his disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Someone paraphrased this. I think it was, actually I've forgotten who it was. Hudson Taylor's coming to mind. Uh, the person is no fool who gives up what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. In Christ, we have been blessed with everything. Why do we try and hold on to stuff that we cannot hold on to and let it get in the way of following the one who blesses us with something that we can never, be lo we can never lose? Following Christ costs, but hear his promise. The one who wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And so as we go, we must follow him in the strength that he provides. This is not in our capacity. We cannot do it by our strength. That's why we pray. That's why we gather Sunday mornings for prayer. That is why we should be praying. And we should be confidently coming before God and claiming his promises. 
Lord, I know that you have said that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Let me be a part of those knee bowing, those tongues confessing as people put their trust in you through Christ. Father, I know that you have promised that you will never leave nor forsake me. Father, Lord Jesus, you have promised that you are with us to the very end of the age. As we go, we go in his strength, speaking his words to a community that is desperate to hear of a hope that is held out freely in Christ. As we go, let me just read for you again Spurgeon's words. As he says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it at least be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Amen.